Welcome to WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, your community radio station. Also streaming live online at WVEW.org. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On the air every Sunday at noon, we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook, at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. All our shows are recorded and are uploaded to our SoundCloud and iTunes. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests, not the radio station. My name is Nick. Um, I am a Vermont educator up in Springfield. I'm a graduate of the Spark Education program, the Spark Teacher Ed program. And Welcome to our show. I'm here today with Anna. Hi, everyone. This is Anna, and I also am a Southern Vermont educator, also along with Nick, part of the Spark Teacher Education Institute. And today we're going to share an interview that Nick and I did with Jonathan Elwell this week. Jonathan is with the Vermont Debt Collective. And he joins us to talk about the work that is being done by the Debt Collective nationally. And we also talk about how privatization impacts our lives. And Jonathan will also share upcoming work that's happening in Vermont with the Debt Collective. So thanks so much everyone for joining us today. And we're gonna head into part one of this interview. Jonathan, welcome to Indigo Radio. And we would love to begin by having you introduce yourself. Uh, to our listeners and maybe tell us a little bit about the Debt Collective. Great. Yeah, thank you for, for having me, Anna. Yeah, so my name is Jonathan Elwell. Um, I, I live in Brattleboro and um, I organize with the Debt Collective. And the Debt Collective is a debtors union that is right now really focused on um, a student debt strike and winning student debt cancellation, but is really broadly focused on um, building debtor power on student debt and medical debt and many other forms of debt too. Jonathan, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the background about all the debt that's specifically specifically related to student debt, like how we got to where we are. I know that I looked at the cost of my own college that I went to like 12 years ago, 13 years ago, and the price has gone up by $20,000 just in those years. And so I'm curious, like if you could kind of describe the situation to us. Sure, yeah. It's kind of a, a bit of a long story. <laughs> and I think probably the best place to start would be going all the way back to like land grant universities back in the 19th century and thinking about just the idea of education and higher education as a public good. And that was something that obviously you know, the word public in that sense was limited in terms of who it applied to, but the idea was still there of higher education as something that we should make available to people because it is a public good. And then, you know, over the course of about a century, that was a privilege that was mainly held um, by just white men. And then in the 1960s, especially, you start to see things um, open up a little bit more and more women and people of color um, attending colleges and universities. Um, and then you have the Higher Education Act of 1965, which made this into law and really prioritized 
bringing more um, women and people of color into the university and into academic spaces. And this, along with um, increasing activism on campus at the time, was then met with a really deeply racist and, and conservative pushback. And I think where many people go when explaining this kind of long arc is to California, where UC Berkeley especially, um, and, and many other schools in the Bay Area were hotbeds of, of different you know, forms of organizing and activism in that period. And Ronald Reagan ran for governor in California in the mid-1960s with a variety of different priorities and policies. And one of them was charging tuition at the UC system for the first time. And this is, this is a direct quote from, from Reagan. He said, those there to agitate and not to study might think twice before they pay tuition. They might think twice about how much they want to pay to carry a picket sign. And he said that the state would not be in the business of subsidizing intellectual curiosity. And so at that point, what had been a system that was rapidly becoming more equitable um, took a turn in the opposite direction. And then over the course of the next few decades, we see broader disinvestment in, in higher education, both at a state and a federal level across the country. And that's really where student debt starts to come into play. It really is a new issue. You know, you never heard people talking about or organizing around student debt before this. And that's because the scale and the scope of the problem was just totally different. Student debt only hit a trillion dollars about a decade ago. And now we're seeing it all the way up to about 1.8 trillion dollars. Um, and that's that's just in a really astronomical ride. And it is due to, to that historical process of, of excluding people from the university. And then, you know, when that was no longer fully possible, forcing people to debt finance their own education to, yeah, put the, put the burden of cost back onto the person who's, who's receiving that education. I think Ronald Reagan, I'm sure you know, is, is also so associated with what people often talk about the rise of neoliberalism and privatization, even though of course it does actually extend farther, but Reagan, Reagan, Thatcher, those years always come up as like the beginning creep of that. And so, or I, I would say like an acceleration of that. And we wanna talk about that a little bit and how debt is really like part and parcel of the capitalist system. And this was a quote that was I found, I think, actually on the Debt Collective social media page. So I'm just going to read it to you. And I would love for you to talk about it a little bit and uh, what message the collective is trying to get across with this quote. Uh, it reads, neoliberalism can seem complex when scholars and economists talk about it, but the lived experience is pretty straightforward. For most of us, neoliberalism is about, is about being in debt. That's why we need debtors unions. They're a way for ordinary people to find power in their shared condition and organize to fight for debt cancelization. Higher taxes on the rich and public goods. Yeah, I, um, I really appreciate you sharing that quote. I think, um, you know, like you said, neoliberalism is about, you know, privatization and about financialization and, you know, commodifying things that had been held you know, in common by, by people in community or by the government acting on behalf of the people. Yeah, so that, that happens in a wide variety of different ways um, and shows up differently in different places. But yeah, as the quote says, um, the lived experience is pretty straightforward because the result of that 
is, you know, that the burden of cost is put on the individual. And so things that had been considered public goods like education or in, in some places, different resources like water, you know, and, and different, yeah, commonly held goods, when they are privatized, then the burden is put on the individual to pay for it. And some people are able to pay for those things out of pocket, but for the vast majority of us, that means taking on debt. And that means student loan debt, that means medical debt, that means credit card debt too. There's a, a quote that I often see on different debt collective posters and different things um, that says, we are not in debt because we, are, we live beyond our means. We are in debt because we are denied the means to live. Mm. And I think that's really what this neoliberal project is, you know, at its essence with its impact on people and how it shows up in people's lives is that, you know, it, it makes it harder and more costly for people to meet their basic needs um, and to access the things that they need to live a dignified life. Um, and that's particularly insidious, I think, because then the reaction to that is is often shame and and it's something that we process individually you know there's there's something about that process of putting the burden on the individual that then makes us think that it's the individual's job to deal with it and i think a, a huge focus of a lot of the outreach and and political education that the debt collective does is really premised on this idea that you are not in debt because of mistakes that you've made. You know, that is not why we are in this situation together. We are in debt because of structural problems, um, because of the offloading of the responsibility to provide these things from the government or from public, you know, publicly owned and, and managed resources to privately held and debt financed resources. So yeah, it, there's there's a really deep connection there. And, and just one more point on that. I think, Anna, as you said, these processes didn't start with neoliberalism, which I think is really important to focus on too. This isn't something that is completely brand new, but they have been deepened um, and really intensified in ways that, that yeah, have had lots of negative impacts. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious too, because in an article that I was reading by, who's the person that started the Debt Collective? There are a few co-founders, maybe Astrid Taylor, Exactly, Taylor. Yeah. So they they were talking about, and this goes to like your piece about the individuality of debt. They're talking about using this word forgiveness as if someone has done something wrong, and that, and that, actually the the semantics and the euphemisms around the language that we use is also so individualized. So that makes a lot of sense. I think that you know I'm a high school teacher, and so last week we were talking about credit cards and why would you take a credit card out and why, what would you use a credit card for? What's the smart way to build credit? And like the reality is that kids who are poor don't have the possibilities that kids who have money already are like that they're already working with. And so it was really interesting because, you know, teachers, are a different group of people than a lot of our, our students, right? We come from different, we have different um, economic situations, I think, than a lot of our students. And so the teacher's response was, well, you take out a credit card to build credit. And my response was, but also people take out credit cards because they can't afford anything, right? And so what's the what the blame is, is that I couldn't afford anything in the first place. So there must be something wrong with me. I didn't work hard enough or 
achieve enough or my parents didn't do those things in order for me to be able to not have to go into intense debt to get to get an education or to pay for my medical bills or to pay for just basic needs. So I think that makes a lot of sense, but I'm wondering if there's other language that besides forgiveness that you're seeing come up because of your work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think we we definitely try to push back when when folks who use the term forgiveness for the reasons that you mentioned that, you know, debtors have done nothing wrong and have nothing to be forgiven for and yeah, I think there, there are a couple different words. Um, you often see people talking about debt cancellation, and that's definitely a step in the right direction from forgiveness. But the word that I always try to use is abolition. And I think that is really important because it brings into context what the debt collective is actually pushing for. Because this is not just about a one-time policy action. This is not, no one thinks that we can just cancel our debts and then keep on going, you know, as we had been before and that everything will be okay. That That is divorced from reality, you know, then we'll just find ourselves in exactly the same predicament, you know, a decade or two down the road. So what's so powerful about abolition is that, you know, we push for that one-time policy of wiping clean, you know, the slate and releasing people from their debts and also abolishing the conditions that put people into debt in the first place. And that's where you can have a much more expansive and I think impactful conversation about then, you know, how do we fund education, you know, and reestablish higher education as a public good? How do we ensure that people have the right to, to food and to shelter and to everything that, you know, they need to, to live a dignified and healthy life? And that, I think, is a, a much more meaningful future to strive for and definitely something that we try to hold hold close in these conversations because it can, especially in moments like right now where there does feel like there's a real political possibility of large scale debt cancellation, you know, we want to put focus our energy there, but we also want to make it clear again and again that that alone does not solve anything. You know, it is that conjunction with the actions that that abolish the conditions that put us into debt and profit off our debt. Yeah, that's really clear. And so would you say then, because what I'm hearing too, when you when you talk like that, is that the fight for debt cancellation is actually also a, a fight against privatization in general? Would you say that? I think so. Can, can you, yeah, maybe go. Yeah, the reason I asked that is because you were talking about how you would use ab- abolition, the word abolition. And then we talk about how, what are the actual like conditions that put people here in the first place? And that it's not just about like wiping out the debt. Cause as you say that, um, that's not going to solve the problem. It's just going to continue to happen. Right. It's same with like, you know, taking it away from school debt, same with medical debt. If we wiped away medical debt, that doesn't say, solve the problem of privatized healthcare. It doesn't solve the problem of privatized education. Yeah, so does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I think that is definitely, a, yeah, something, something that is very reasonable to say because, yeah, it really is about, you know, at a core level, again, kind of going back to that shame that mm-hmm. we're often told to feel around debt, you know, it's, it's pushing back on that. And then, again, going even further to reassert that, 
not only do I not have to be ashamed for my debts, but that I deserve all of these things, you know, and that's not me being entitled. That's not me being unreasonable. You know, those are things that that I deserve, that all people deserve, and that we can achieve if we act collectively. All right. That was Jonathan Elwell. Thanks for joining us, Jonathan, on Indigo Radio. And we're going to go to a song. This is Aloe Black, I Need a Dollar. I 
Thanks for listening. That was Aloe Black. And we're back with Jonathan Elwell of the Debt Collective. Yeah, great. So that actually leads to another question we had is, and it's sort of a, a two-part question um, coming back to actually how this collective is working. Because there's going to be people out there that say, but wait, what, what's going to happen to me if I don't pay my loans, right? So what happens if you don't pay your loans? And if individuals might like suffer a consequence like that. And so if you could also then talk to us about the importance of acting collectively. This is, yeah, an issue that comes up a lot because, you know, we are on debt strike right now. I, I am, I am a debt striker. Um, I'm striking my student debt and yeah, it's, it's kind of a strange thing. And a lot of people ask, what does that mean? And basically all that means is that I'm not paying you know, in the same way that that a strike in the labor movement is about withholding your labor, this is about withholding your payments on your debt. And that can look very different for different people and also is is kind of off limits. Because I think that there would be, I, I would guess, concern out there or even like, I'm, you know, what if I just do it? Okay, I'm going to yeah. like not, same with kind of like, I'm not going to pay my taxes or I'm not going to pay yeah. my rent. Yeah, so that definitely is a huge concern. Um, and I think there are a few different answers to it. One is that there are already millions of people out there who are not paying their debts. You know, there are about 45 million people in the US who have student debt and about 1 million default every year. So I think part of, you know, what we're trying to do with a debt strike with, with withholding our payments um, is you know, reaching out to people who are already in that situation um, of not paying their debt and urging them to politicize that and giving them the, the networks and the pathways in the community to, yeah, start moving towards collective action. Because again, that's, it's a crazy statistic. Over a million people are defaulting on their student loans every year. And, and so one aspect of it is, again, just politicizing folks who are already in that moment of not paying their debts. Yeah, for, for a lot of people, a debt strike doesn't make sense. And I think the, the Biden Jubilee 100 strike that we're on right now is really important for symbolic reasons more so than material reasons. You know, we're, we're 100 debt strikers who are pledging not to pay our student debt until it's all canceled. Us, 100 people, on the one hand, it's crazy that we collectively have millions of dollars of student debt. And even though that number is big enough to play a huge role in our lives, that's not the kind of material leverage that's actually going to, you know, win you any sort of concessions or, or cancellation. But what it is, is a symbolic strike to really bring into focus how deeply unjust and unequal these systems are. And, and so that's one aspect of the collective action is, yeah, understanding that a debt strike is not for everyone. And we definitely do not want to encourage people to go into default or, yeah, to do other things that might harm their financial situation and their, and their family's financial situation. There also are tools that you can find on the Debt Collective's website for contesting your debts. There are several different tools for, for student loan debts, especially private student loans or loans from for-profit colleges and universities. And the idea there is 
also connecting people with those tools to contest their debts and yeah, put, push back a little bit and, and bring power to more people who otherwise, you know, would be just fighting against the system alone. So can I ask then, because I just learned this the other day from, from a person who has a private loan that in this particular time of the pandemic, public loans through the government are on deferment because of the pandemic, but people are still required to pay their private loans during this time. And so part of the, I guess my question is part of the million people that you're describing have not maybe politicized their non-payment because it may for them, while they believe it's not political, just be about not being able to pay the, the enormous amount of debt that they have. Yeah, totally. I think, I think for most people, that's the case. I think the way that the debt collective is talking about debt and urging, you know, more people to think and act, you know, regarding debt is, is a pretty new thing in a lot of ways. And yeah, it can take some time for people, you know, it's, it's, I didn't mean to to kind of make the case that there are a million people out there every year who are like perfectly ready to to join yeah. the debt collective and and say that they're on debt strike. But I think part of the organizing that we're doing is you know creating the sort of ideological foundation, but also very much like the social infrastructure, so that you know if someone were to default, yeah, it, it would be something where they could reach out to their local debt collective union chapter or you know feel more comfortable talking about it with with a friend or family members who might say hey you know have you heard about this organization that sort of thing and so it's yeah I think a a longer term process to get us to a point yeah where that that can happen no I totally agree with you I think that my question around that is kind of similar to what Anna's question was that there are consequences for people who don't pay their student loan debt and part of those consequences are that like you can't reap the benefits of social security later on Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious if there are other consequences, because I think the way that you describe the history of this particular moment where we are at, you know, a decade ago, one trillion and now almost at two, is that there's there's always forces that that are acting historically and that we are now in a moment where people can't pay their loans. There are I'm sure at least a million people now, right? If not more that during this pandemic have not been able to pay their loans. And so while those conditions are are taking place for people who maybe as you're describing are not yet politicizing their non-payment, there is also the need for this work to be done in order to politicize the fact that people are struggling. This is a this should be a public good and also this is not, it's not possible anymore. People are, people are not able to live in this way. And while they're paying into social security still, because they're not paying into their student loan debt, they won't be able to reap the benefits that they, they also, that is also a public good that they're paying into. So I'm curious if there are other pieces of what the consequences are for individuals because I, I agree with you totally. It's a collective issue that needs to be addressed collectively. Yeah. Yeah. There definitely um, are more implications for individuals who, who default. For one thing, your, your balance jumps <laughs> overnight. 
and yeah, your your wages can be garnished. As you said, you can be prevented from accessing Social Security and other other things that we assume all people can access. But of course, that's really not the case you know, with people who default on their on their loans or people who have been incarcerated um, and you know, people are excluded in lots of different ways from those things. And I really appreciate how you mentioned kind of thinking about the larger structural factors that have made that so. And I think one thing that's important to note when we're talking about student loan debt is that, you know, Joe Biden, when he was in the Senate and, you know, contributed to um, the most recent bankruptcy bill, you know, that that bill actively prevents people from putting their student loans in their bankruptcy claims so that, you know, when you declare bankruptcy, you, you have basically any other form of debt wiped away and, and your student loans are not eligible for that. That's shocking. And I think puts it, you know, into perspective of the kind of power we need to build part of this movement where there, there is really no, no question or, or really idea that Joe Biden is going to abolish these debts out of the goodness of his heart. That's not, that's not why, <laughs> that's not what's going to happen. If that were the case, we would not be in this mess. And so it's about really building the concerted pressure to make them do this. It's something that you know, when when loan cancellation on this scale was first proposed, like a decade ago, people were basically like laughed off the street, and you know, were told like this was a pie in the sky idea that that would never happen. And gradually, the movement has built power. And first, you know, there was kind of a foothold with for-profit universities where everyone was able to agree, like, yeah, that's a deeply messed up system. You know, people who are defrauded should be able to to get their loans canceled. But then it's been creeping more into people's consciousness that, you know, maybe what's been happening with the privatization of, of education, skyrocketing tuition, and, you know, this idea that your higher education is an investment and that it's all about your return on investment. People are, are realizing, and I think a lot of people have known for a lot longer than I have, that that is its own form, you know, of fraud, that we've all been sold a big lie and that that system is not, is not serving people. And, and so now, you know, we're in a place where even someone who is deeply centrist, like, like Joe Biden, you know, was campaigning on $10,000 of cancellation and even greater cancellation for people who attended public universities or HBCUs. And, you know, just that fact that the conversation has come so far is a testament to the power that this movement has built, you know, because that is not, that's not a policy position that, again, Joe Biden chose because that was out of the goodness of his heart. That's something that that organizers and that debtors have have made happen. Thanks so much, Jonathan, for joining us today on Indigo Radio. And we're going to go to a song break. This is Most Definitely by the artist Logic. Just wanna follow my dreams, just wanna follow my heart But the world wanna tell me apart right from the start Everything I ever wanted, it ain't what I 
that thought Bring it back to the roots Like my name Black Thought Get right here No it can't be taught It gotta be learned It gotta be earned I ain't got a pocket full of money But I'm full of hope I don't wanna rob people I don't wanna push dope I just wanna live I just wanna maintain Like a bullet to the brain Gotta play the game Like a chessboard If you wanna go to war Gotta bring your best sword I feel like I'm going crazy Like I need a psych ward Think my mind playing tricks On me like a ghetto boy Feel like I need to murder him In the moment I deploy Everybody, anybody Somebody fit a boy Somebody fit a boy Listen, I don't wanna work Again out of five Every time I get a check What I really get robbed Living in America did this a facade But you gotta push through And persevere with a God Trying to find a home But I can't afford a home Cause I'm 25 and I know 100 grand in student loans Trying to get healthcare But I'm on welfare Man I swear to God I wish I was living in Bel Air Medicaid I just wanna get paid With a couple bad crib getting laid That's what I'm taught by the media Television telling my vision To get greedier Come now everybody Stay tuned like T-Pain Operate the drive in your mind Like a keychain Come now folk Get woke Stay woke Cause the white man With the black man Stay broke I'm finna back But not with bullets I'ma use my education To the fullest I'ma get out of there I'ma reset I'ma get out of there I'ma reset Do whatever you gotta do Whenever to live But you gotta remember To get back when you get that When you finally get to the top And you hit that pinnacle I ain't being cynical I'm just being real I believe that everybody feel Everybody feel Listen up Everybody over here I promise to God On everything It ain't nothing to fear Anybody that can hear Just fight Fight for the right Fight for your life Fight for what you believe Is right Fight for the right Fight for your life Fight for what you believe Is right Everybody fight Everybody fight Matter of fact Everybody beautiful But right now What I need Black people To just fight Fight for your right Fight for your life Black people Just fight Welcome back to Indigo Radio, Deepening Understanding, Making Connections. That was logic, most definitely. And we're going to return to our interview with Jonathan Elwell. Thanks for joining us. Since you mentioned um, HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities, we were hoping to kind of move the conversation to discuss how, how is this a, an issue of race? So contextually, um, you know, there's increasing numbers of black women going to college, but the average black borrower still owes 95% of their loans after 20 years. Um, and I know that there was like this recent news that, or I'm sorry, it was on the, the election circuit when Joe Biden was talking about how he had mortgaged his house to pay for his kids' college tuitions, but people don't even own houses and people can't even get you know, loans for mortgages. Um, so how is it possible that historically marginalized people in this country could take on that kind of debt, not having the kind of inherited wealth that, that others do? Yeah, definitely. That's a, a super important side of this issue because it is a racial justice issue and, and canceling student loan debt would in an instant close the racial wealth gap in a really meaningful way. And yeah, as you said, there's that statistic that, you know, 20 years after graduation, the average black borrower still owes about 95% of the, the amount that they originally borrowed. And from that same study, white borrowers on average um, still owed 6%, just to put that into context. And yeah, that's that's for a number of factors. Like you, you mentioned, you know, the example of mortgaging a house um, to to be able to, to pay for the cost of college and uh, there, are, there are a number of different things. There's access to intergenerational wealth, you know, with something like a home or some other asset that, that you can mortgage. And there's also differences, really significant differences in the amount that people are paid. And that's, that's also not just along lines of race, but also lines of gender, that folks who might get the same education and go into the same kind of field 
will not be paid the same amount and that that is really prohibitive in terms of being able to pay off your student loans. And yeah, in terms of what that leads to, about 25% of all borrowers end up defaulting on their loans. And for white borrowers, that number is 20%. For Latinx borrowers, it's 33%. And for black borrowers, it's 50%. So it's the kind of thing where it's just the rules of this system are so deeply rigged that, that you have outcomes that are that disparate. And I think that's also, it's important here to also kind of bring it back to neoliberalism and kind of the, the ways that these things are indiv individualized because yeah, there's sort of this myth that if you make the right choices and do the right things, you're going to be able to pay off your loans. That is just just simply not the case. Like again, this is this is a structural problem and it excludes and exploits people along along lines of class and gender and race and yeah, because of that canceling all student loan debt is a racial justice issue absolutely. Thanks, Jonathan. Can I just add one thing in here, just also connected to to race and how this, and just making like a really historical connection too, and Nick and I were talking about this earlier, is that that during the colonial age and, and even like the propelling of capitalism, there was a necessity for debt. So they needed capital in order to get capital, which enabled capitalist invasion and occupation, which of course we know is like deeply racist. That even links way back historically of how to me this is also a race issue and how this also like enabled what you had said earlier and from this collective statement, how we encounter this every single day, these neoliberal policies uh, and how they affect our lives, although we, we often don't name it like that. But if we go back to more the origin of it actually, was also around debt and collecting debt, but from like the, the ruling class of like, we need money in order to go do this thing that we want to do, which is occupying and invading. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also connects back to the idea of land grant universities. And when, when we talk about education as a public good in the moments where it actually has been that, again, it's been basically only, <laughs> only been that for white men and, you know, the very land that that education is is happening on is stolen land. You know, that's part of, of centuries-long genocide. And I think that really important to, to say and keep at the center of the conversation, because then when we are looking forward towards what a more just and more equitable education system and, and broader society can look like, that it's not really enough to talk about public goods, but we really have to focus on reparative public goods. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, being really careful with how we talk about what is public, because again, people are excluded from and, and have been excluded from things that or at least termed public, you know, in many different ways across centuries. Yeah. No, that's a great point. It's something I don't think about often, but yeah, I, I'm glad that you made that point. It's also so interesting to me too. I, I don't know if you read the 1619 Project, but there's this great piece about if you want to understand American capitalism, you have to go back to the plantation. And this piece talks about how the first mortgages in the US were taken on the, like the backs, the collateral that was given to the bank were human lives, right? Enslaved human lives. And so not only is it so interesting for to hear 
Joe Biden talk about how he had to remortgage his house. It's like, well, what is the basis of all of this wealth that has been built in this country over centuries, right? It is based on the exploitation of poor and, and Black and Indigenous people. And so the ways in which, you know, this conversation is had in the public sphere is so historical. It's like without context and without history of how did you get that money in the first, how, how did your family get to the place where it is, you know, in the first place. All right. Thanks for joining us on Indigo Radio. We are going to go to a song break. This next song is by Low Key. It's called The Death of Neoliberalism. Anytime you beg another man to set you free, you will never be free. Freedom is something that you have to do for yourself. This is why I say it's the ballot or the bullet. It's liberty or it's death. It's freedom for everybody or freedom for nobody. Freedom! The public service that in death, the World Bank and IMF is it? Freedom! The kleptocracy orchestrating subjugate the corporate state that is it? Freedom! To reason the terrorists, we could be standing at the precipice of Pontificate, philosophize, cross the T's, dot the I's I heard him say the revolution won't be monetized But it could be wrapped up, packaged and commodified In this poisonous equation, I wonder what am I? Tax dodging tabloids, profit from these horrid lights Pedal patriotism, but economically colonized Sycophants gripping flags, tell you that they're on your side Sell off your services abroad, who do they prioritize? Robin Hood in reverse, these robberies aren't secrets Bonuses for bankers and backhanders for arms dealers Can't cage the alternative that now exists With the skill of an alchemist Turn pain to empowerment Inspired to be alive in this powerful moment No more of all these cowards sell us out to the donors We rose like a giant awoken out of this coma Confront the culture of power with the power of culture We sing Freedom! The public service dying death The World Bank and IMF is it? Freedom! The kleptocracy orchestrating subjugate the corporate state That is it? Freedom! To reasons the terrorists We could be standing at the precipice of History favors the trailblazers, the taste for change is contagious, it's no strange these faces takers are afraid of raising wages when the same mangy papers say that we should hate our neighbors, then when the rage cascades these sadists claim that they're blameless, what is clear, some don't even pay taxes on their profits here, vote against the interests of Murdoch and Rothermere, not conspiracy theory, conspiracy actuality, until now politics merely a practicality, they deify celebrity. What happens when no celebrities turn on you? Say plunder's not necessity, I don't condemn the deified. But mourn those as brilliant as them who died, potential unrealized. Atomization had us distant and deaf, and now we're interconnected, independent but interdependent. We rose like a giant, awoken out of a coma. Confront the culture of power with the power of culture. We sing. Freedom! The public service died, death, the World Bank and IMF is it? Welcome back to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. And this is our continued interview with Jonathan Elwell of the Debt Collective. We had talked about this, this action 
that's going to be taking place on the, I think you said the 100 Jubilee. I was wondering if you could talk about that. I was wondering also if you could tell us a little bit about the debt collectives activities in Vermont and what's happening here. Yeah, definitely. I'm realizing I probably should have shared more of that at the outset. So what's going on right now is the what 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 we call the um, Biden Jubilee 100, and that's a group of um, 100 people who are on strike. We're not paying our student loans, and we are pledging to not pay our student loans until all federally held student loan debt is canceled. Because that's something that that Joe Biden has the power to do with executive order that's written into the um, Higher Education Act of 1965 that. The Secretary of Education can waive and and release people from from their debts, and it's the exact same mechanism that's been used to put in place the the moratorium, both under Trump and and now under Biden. So just rather than than pausing collection, it would be canceling the debts. But it's yeah, the exact same mechanism and well within Biden's power to do so. What's going on right now is that strike where we're really putting pressure on Biden to to take that action. And so with the name Biden Jubilee 100, part of that is 100 strikers, um, but part of it is also 100 days, thinking about the first 100 days as a time where where a lot is possible and where a new president really wants to make a statement. Um, and we are really pushing for large-scale debt cancellation to be part of that statement. And so what's coming up here at the end of the month is a national week of action, kind of gradually scaling up the intensity of what we're doing here in Brattleboro. That means that on Saturday, April 3rd at 2 p.m., we'll be getting together at Plenty Park for a rally to yeah, share share you know our debt stories and talk about why we're in this mess and hoot and holler and build power for, for getting it all canceled. I think this also sits within the larger context of the Debt Collective as an organization and kind of changes that have taken place over time where was really born out of Occupy Wall Street and was kind of this small nebulous thing for a while and was first really focused on medical debt. And the actions that the, the debt collective took were to host like different fundraisers and raise money to buy up and then cancel uh, medical debts for pennies on the dollar. And then, as we talked about a little earlier, moving more to focus on student loan debt, first with for-profit schools and, and private loans, and now pushing for broad cancellation of, of all federally held student loan debt. Throughout that time, the Debt Collective has moved from being more of just like a nonprofit organization that has relied on different forms of foundation funding and other, other grants to being a dues-paying union. Um, and that's a transition that's happening really right now. That is what got me into this movement. I was not a part of it until I attended a Jubilee school in September. A Jubilee school is um, basically, obviously it was over Zoom now, but it's really, it's just an opportunity for people to get together and kind of create a shared understanding of, of what we've been talking about, of why we're in this mess and our vision for building power, of, of how we're going to get out of it. And so building a dues paying union, I think is super exciting because then you know, it is run by and for the members, for the debtors, and not beholden to to anyone else's, you know, money or or interests. I think there's there's something really potentially powerful and transformative in that. So what's happening here in Vermont is that we're building up a local chapter 
yeah, right now so far is is just folks in Brattleboro. But yeah, we're we're trying to build it statewide, and I think it will be really interesting to see how it goes because most of the other chapters so far are in larger cities. The most established ones are in Philadelphia, D.C., Chicago, and and a variety of other urban areas. So. I'm personally really curious and, and excited to be working on um, building a debtors union in a more rural area and thinking about, yeah, possibilities for debtor organizing here. And yeah, excited to, to build power with folks. That's great. And it's, and we will definitely, if you send us uh, all the information about April 3rd, we'd be happy to put that out on Indigo Radio and Brattleboro Solidarity. And as you know, you may already know that Brattleboro Solidarity loves standing on the corner on Pliny Park. So we hopefully will also join you. Uh, and I, the, the thing I just keep on thinking, and I think it was partly in, came out in one of my questions to you, but listening to you and even thinking about Pliny Park on April 3rd is that it is so much about not just wiping off the debt, but I mean, you said it yourself around changing those conditions that make debt happen and accumulate. And I was also thinking about Texas and how with the storm, uh, people ended up with some like $10,000 bills. And that was because of the privatization of the electric grid and, and system. And we've mentioned other things here, both you and Nick and I have you know, talked about the medical system. Uh, I was also thinking about here in Brattleboro, I just drove by the co-op and the bridge collapsed. And that's something that's under construction right now. And I don't know what the situation is there, but I know in general, public works with the rise of neoliberal policies, part of that was changing from public goods to private hands and deregulation. And so you know, we drive down a street with potholes. Our car has to go to the shop for $500. That goes on our credit card. And I, so it's like, I'm thinking about all the ways, like how do we make these connections so that it is this larger fight against these privatization policies that wreak havoc on our lives, really? I think that's such a nice picture that you painted too, Anna, because I think that the way that Jonathan described it and then the way that you painted that picture makes me think about just how different our whole world would be mm -hmm. if we could stop the privatization of all of these services. And, you know, it's not obviously just privatization, but I think that I'm curious, like what life was like before at, Ber at UC Berkeley, what was it that students were doing because now right if you go out there with a sign you can be kicked off campus and still have to pay your bills and never have a university degree and so to me it's like it's not only it's not only that we're atomized it's that we don't have power individually which is i think what you're describing jonathan that we have no power and that our lives can be turned upside down in a moment because of that atomization Debt is really just about power. You know, there's this idea that that our debts are things that are set in stone that, you know, we signed a contract and now we can't change it. And that is just so simply not true. Contracts are changed all the times when you see big um, investment banks or financial corporations going into massive amounts of debt. A bailout is always waiting for them, and the the terms of their agreements are always up for amendments when when it serves their purposes. And so I think I think part of of what we're doing, you know, with this organizing around debt is just pushing back 
on that idea that no these these things are are about power you know there's nothing wrong with being in debt it's not about you as an individual you've made no mistakes these are about systems and how we function as a society how we meet our needs how we divvy up the things that we have and yeah as we've talked about right now that is obviously deeply deeply unequal and unjust and and so this movement is about yeah building the collective power to to abolish debts and then this this is where it connects to your point Anna where you know it's abolition not just as the world without but as the world with you know and and what can we create in that space when when people talk about having their debt canceled, like when I've been on the phone with folks who are in default or on strike for different reasons, them having their debts canceled isn't just like, okay, sweet, now I can go, you know, invest in the stock market or do different things. And maybe they will do like, that's, that's totally fine. People can do what they want with their money. But across the board, you see people saying, now I can actually spend time with my family. Now I can spend time, you know, with my community doing things that matter to me. And yeah, collectively building that world together, because when we're working 40, 50, 60 hours a week, just to make ends meet, it doesn't feel like, you know, we have the time or space to create a different world, because how could we possibly, you know, collectively manage things, you know, when, when we don't have, when we don't have the time on our hands. And that, you know, canceling debts, creating a more just economic system can be, be one step in that direction of giving us the possibility yet yeah, to build something that feels very, very different. And the focus right now is so much on student debt because of the organizing that's been done over the last decade to bring us to a point where it feels like a big win, you know, that will change people's lives overnight is really possible. And so while we have the focus on that, I also don't want to lose sight of the fact that this is about all forms of debt. You know, this is about medical debt. This is about, about carceral debt, about credit card debt, about all different forms of, of exploitation that people are in and suffering from. And yeah, as we've said, it's not just about canceling those debts, but about creating systems where people can, you know, get, get the healthcare that they need, where, where people are not incarcerated and forced to pay for their incarceration. So we don't just call for the cancellation of medical debt, we call for universal healthcare. You know, we don't just call for for the cancellation of carceral debts. You know, we call for defunding the police and, and abolishing, you know, the prison industrial complex. And something that's so exciting to me about the, the union model is that then, you know, individual chapters and branches will have the ability to focus on the causes that matter to them, you know, and to team up with the organizations um, and movements in, in their area that you know, are, are fighting for different things. And it feels, it feels really transformative, you know, what, what could come out of, of this kind of analysis and organizing, because it's so important. It's affecting so many people. Yeah, definitely. Jonathan, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank, thank you both. This is really wonderful. So we just want to thank Jonathan one more time. We really appreciate him taking the time to chat with us. Um, I learned a lot from, from chatting with him and we did want to share an event that Jonathan was uh, had mentioned in the interview. So on Saturday, April 3rd at 2 p.m., the Vermont Debt Collective will host an event at Pliny Park in downtown Brattleboro as part of a national week of action to call on Joe Biden to cancel all federally held student loan debt in his first 100 days in office. 
you can check out the Vermont Debt Collective on Facebook for more info. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. We'll be back next week. And thanks again, Jonathan. And we're going to head out with Dolly Parton. Is that right, Nick? Dolly Parton, working nine to five. <laughs> thanks, everyone. Tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen. Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life. Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping With folks like me on the job from nine to five Working nine to five Just a step on the boss man's ladder But you got dreams he'll never take away On the same boat with a lot of your friends Waiting for the day your ship will come in And the tide's gonna turn and it's all gonna roll your way Working nine to five